I'm feeling it. I'm loving it. You guys are awake. We're ready to roll. Well, if you have a Bible, uh, you're going to want to take that out. We're going to be in the second to last chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, We're nearing the end, so we're in chapter 49 of Genesis. We're going to look at just the first four verses there. And while you're turning there, let me hit you with the dreaded words that none of us ever wanted to hear when we were youngsters in grade school. The teacher would come into the classroom and would say, all right, boys and girls, pop quiz. Well, that's what I have for you today. I have a pop quiz, except my pop quiz is only one question. And the question is this, what do you know about Reuben? And you might ask, Mike, uh, Reuben the man or the sandwich? Well, I'm speaking about the man, the man Reuben, who's mentioned more than a dozen times in the book of Genesis. What do you know about him? And if I had to guess what your answer might be, it might be a couple things. You might say, well, uh, he was one of the sons of Jacob, and that is correct. And you might think, well, and wasn't he the oldest son of Jacob, which is also correct. But beyond that, we might struggle a little bit. Uh, We might come up a little bit dry after those two bits of information, and the only thing we could think of perhaps after that is to talk about corned beef and sauerkraut, because we've exhausted our knowledge of the man Reuben, uh, and we're going to talk about the sandwich instead. But the the truth is, Reuben and and the people who would come after him, known as the Reubenites, uh, I I think Scripture testifies that they're really not that memorable. I mean, if you think about some of the other brothers, uh, when I think about Joseph, uh, a whole uh, host of thoughts come to mind, and in particular, uh, a quote that he said, which we'll get to in the next chapter, is he said, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, the saving of many lives. We have no such quote that I'm aware of that jumps to my mind when it comes to Reuben. There's no, there's no great descendant from, from the loins of, of Reuben like we have with the Lion of Judah or, or the Apostle Paul who's from the tribe of Benjamin. We don't have those that we're aware of. Uh, Reuben's brother Levi. When I, when I think about Levi, I think about the law. The Levitical law gets its name from Levi. We have really no such thing when it comes to Reuben. So it's no surprise that we might come up a little bit empty when asked, what do you know about him? So we're going to talk about him today. The first four verses of Genesis 49 cover Reuben. And so if you would, please stand as we honor God at the public proclamation of his word. I will read it to us. Again, Genesis 49, verses 1 through 4, I'm reading from the ESV. Word of God says this. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water. 
You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we looked at last week, Pastor Mike shared with us that, that Jacob here, he's, he's on his deathbed. Before this chapter concludes, Jacob will have passed. And so what he's done here is he's gathered all of his sons together around him, and he's going to tell each of them what's going to happen to them in the days to come. And so the passage is, is both prophetic and poetic. If you look in your Bible, it's kind of smushed together there, beginning in verse 2. That, that's, a, that's a sign we're dealing with poetry. And so this is poetry. But it's also prophetic. He's telling them what's going to happen in the future to them and those who would come after them. And this section is often referred to as Jacob blesses his sons. And we'll see with Reuben and some of the other boys, uh, these blessings, they look a lot more like curses. And so that's the case with Reuben. But imagine the scene. Imagine the scene. Jacob, he's weak. He's, he's about to die. He's on his deathbed, and, and he gathers around uh, all of his, his 12 sons, envisioned like a semicircle around Jacob. And if anybody's anticipating this event, I got to think it's Reuben. Reuben's coming kind of expectantly. He's kind of rubbing his hands together. He knows he's the firstborn. He's the oldest. And so he has a very privileged position within the family. And so in verse 3, Jacob starts with him. He looks right at Reuben, and he addresses him personally. And only two verses here are dedicated to the firstborn Reuben. And it's as if Jacob takes him on this bad roller coaster ride. He, he starts out, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. And I, and I see Reuben there. He's like, yep, that's right. First one out the womb. Jacob says, my might. Reuben concurs, strong as an ox, baby. He's loving this at this point. The first fruits of my strength. Don't stop. Keep it coming. Preeminent in dignity. Yeah, that's right. Preeminent in power. That's what I'm talking about. Verse 4 unstable as water. Reuben's like, what? What would you say? Did you say unstable? This begins the downward descent for Reuben. He says, you will not have preeminence. And you can just see Reuben, his, his, his countenance is falling. And the question is, why? Why will he not have preeminence? And Jacob answers it. He says, because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Jacob says, you have sinned against me in a most grievous way. And notice, notice Jacob too. He, he's dealing directly with Reuben, but then all of a sudden he goes third person on him. It's as if he's, he's looking, uh, Captain Elder Al, I'm going to use you as an example. All right? uh, Al is so important, I give him two titles. He's a captain and he's an elder here at the church. So love you, but I'm going to put you in the position of Reuben, okay? He's like, all right, that's what I love about you. Easy to get along with. I'm Jacob, you're Reuben. He's like, you went up to my bed and you defiled it. And then he turns away from him and like he addresses the brothers and says, he went up to my couch, 
I mean, Jacob is outraged here, exclamation point. And I got to think, this is pretty devastating for Reuben to hear. And guess what? That's all Jacob has for Reuben. That's it. He, he moves on to Simeon and Levi from this point on. And it's not as though this is a, ro a roller coaster ride, because in two verses, he, he went from might, strength, preeminence, dignity, power, to a crash landing. The roller coaster hit a brick wall at the bottom. And Jacob's done with Reuben. Off to the other brothers he goes. So this, this is not a, a, a capricious act. This is not arbitrary on the, on the part of Jacob. We know he likes to play favorites, right? He had Joseph as his favorite. It's not as though he's got something against Reuben. That's not the case because we have the answer in verse 4. Jacob refers to two things when it comes to Reuben. One, his character, and two, his behavior. First, his character. He says, you're unstable. You're unstable as water. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, water is, is an unstable compound. It can either be uh, hot or cold. If you, if you expose it to extreme heat, it will boil. If you expose it to extreme cold, it will freeze. It, it, it often evaporates and just disappears. And when you pour it out, it's always going to seek the lowest level. And water is, is fluid, quite, quite literally. It's an ever-changing substance and therefore unstable. Contrast that with a rock, okay? A rock is a rock. It, it doesn't change shape. It, it doesn't move. It, it's solid. It's steady. It's dependable. And water lacks that type of consistency. And so this is how Jacob describes Reuben. And we know that our, our behavior and the way we act flows out of our character. It just does. And so that's the next thing that Jacob refers to is he refers to Reuben's behavior. And he says, you went up to my bed and defiled it. This is a reference to Reuben engaging in a sexual act with his stepmother, Jacob's wife, Bilhah, the concubine. And because Jacob cites this, this must be an important event. And so I want to look at it in its totality. I want to look at the full account of, of everything that Scripture has to say about this one sinful act. So to do that, we go back to Genesis 35. And we're going to look at it in full. I need to get a drink of water. I'll let you turn there. Genesis 35, verse 22, says this, While Israel, that's Jacob, lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. That's it. That's all we got. We don't know what led up to this, how this happened, where it happened, why this happened. We know none of that. But we know this, Jacob heard of it, and oh, the ramifications of that one event. Because it comes up many years later as Jacob drops this bomb upon Reuben. 
and describes for him the tragic result of that one sinful act. But it's never really just one act. One action does not define our character. That would be somebody acting out of character if they just did something one time. Our character is defined by how we behave time and time again through a series of events throughout our lives. That's how you know somebody's character. It shows itself over time by the way we act. And we have enough examples in Scripture to see that with Reuben, it really just wasn't that one time. Remember when the brothers were going to kill Joseph? we got to go all the way back to the beginning of the story, uh, Genesis 37. And, uh, you know, they're jealous of Joseph and they want to kill him. Well, who pipes up? The oldest son, Reuben. And he says, we're not going to kill him. Very good, Reuben. That's how an older brother, the oldest son, ought to behave. You set them boys straight. But then he goes on and he says, instead, let's throw him into a pit. And the plan was to come by and retrieve him later. See, if Reuben was a man of solid character, if he was stable, he would have said something like this. We're not going to kill him, all right? I know he's our annoying little brother, talking about them dreams of us bowing down to him, uh, running around with that multicolored coat. Yeah, I don't like him either, but we're not going to kill him because that would be wrong, period. It's not what Reuben says. Kind of unstable. Remember when the brothers needed to bring Benjamin to Egypt at the behest of Joseph? Jacob's like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not taking my baby boy Benjamin with you. And and this is where Reuben, he he offers up this gem to dear old dad. This is a direct quote. He says, kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. Okay, Reuben, I, I see what you're going for. You're like, father, you can trust me. I'll, I'll make sure Benjamin is returned to you. But then Reuben goes all Reuben and says, but in the event that something happened, if something should happen, let's just say, go ahead and kill my kids. Your grandchildren, go ahead, kill them. I think for those words to come from a man's mouth, I think it's putting it kind of mildly that he's unstable. That's our boy Reuben. Yet he's, he's the firstborn. He, he's the oldest son entitled to a double portion of the father's inheritance. And he, he should have received that inheritance. And he should have been the leader, except J, uh, Judah kind of rises to that role. Reuben should have been strong. Instead, he was weak. He should have been solid. Instead, he was unstable, like water. And he should have defended his father's honor. Instead, he defiled it by having sex with his wife. Reuben potentially had it all, but in the end, he lost it. And it was forfeited due to what? A lack of character which showed itself through sinful behavior. And that whole escapade with Bilhah, we have no record of his repentance whatsoever. So what became of of, of Jacob's prophecy of Reuben? Well, to answer that question, all we need to do is to continue forward in our Bibles. Just keep reading to the right. You'll you'll see what happened. Book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 5, we read this. 
the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's couch, there it is, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. See, the, the balance of Scripture gives evidence to just how prophetic Jacob was in Genesis 49. If we look through all of redemptive history, there are no notable people who come from the tribe of Reuben. No judge, no prophet, no ruler, no king, no apostle, to our knowledge, come from this tribe. Now, I'll give you five more layers of evidence. I'll cover them very briefly. Later in, in 1 Chronicles, that same chapter, chapter 5, it records the Assyrian captivity. And, and when the, 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 the tribes were, were uh, dragged off into captivity, the first one dragged off, you guessed it, the Reubenites. Numbers 16, Korah, the rebellion of Korah. Remember Korah? He, he was a Levite, but he had a couple cohorts with him in that rebellion. And, you know, this is where the, the earth opened up, swallowed people, fire from heaven, kills 250 men. Well, the cohorts with Korah were Reubenites. The, the concern of Moses in Deuteronomy 33, he, he's actually afraid that the Reubenites might die out. He says, let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. Judges 5, Deborah indicts the Reubenites for their selfishness. And of the 27 books of the New Testament, neither Reuben nor the Reubenites are mentioned a single time, with the exception of one book. And we'll get to that later. But this is the legacy left by Reuben forever etched in the annals of history. And this might explain why we come up a little bit empty when asked, what do you know about Reuben? It has nothing to do with our biblical literacy or lack thereof. He's just not a prominent figure in redemptive history. Because this is a tragic story. This is a story of what could have been. He, he held this lofty position and then took a tremendous tumble. And so I entitled this ser the sermon, Reuben, A Cautionary Tale. I, I think this is a warning. This is a warning to us. That's how we should read this. So in our small passage here, I think there's two big truths. One is sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. And two, sin has collateral damage. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But I think these are the ra rather obvious lessons learned from the life of Reuben. See, Reuben, he was a privileged man. He was. And, I, and I, I think we're a little bit more like Reuben than we might think. We are a privileged group. And I know that word privilege is being tossed around a lot today in our culture. Uh, but I, I want to I kind of... Uh, flip the script a little bit and present that word in a slightly different light. Because it's, it's a hot-button topic right now, but regardless of our skin color, if you and I are in Christ, we are privileged. We are. We're a privileged group. Privilege simply means advantaged. Reuben was privileged because he was the firstborn of the children of Jacob. 
You and I, dear Christian, are privileged because we are the children of God. For Reuben, it was by virtue of his birth, being the firstborn. For the Christian, it's by virtue of our new birth, being born of God, not by heritage, but by grace. See, we live in America. We're afforded certain religious liberties that aren't offered elsewhere in other countries. That's privilege. We have access to the Word of God. Not everybody does. You, you can read your Bible in public for now. That's privilege. You're in a church right now, or you're on a church website. You're not, we're not hunkered down in somebody's basement, you know, all shh, meeting all secretly, like we got to meet in private to worship Jesus. No, we're in a public place. The, the gatherings across America, anybody can walk into a church. It's, it's public. It's, it's there. It's, it's a privilege that we have. You can do it freely. And so like Reuben, we have advantages and we have privileges. But one privilege we don't have is to be free from the consequences of our sin. And I, and I think we, we might have the tendency to think, yeah, that, that's right. Sin does have consequences. The wages of sin is death. Right? The soul that sins shall die. Right? That, that's, we tend to think that, that's for the non-Christian. Like the, the non-Christian needs to come to Christ, be forgiven. But for me, I'm already a Christian, therefore already forgiven. True, praise the Lord for the mercy that he has shown you. And, and you may not suffer in hell for your sins, but that doesn't mean that you won't suffer in this life for your sins. We, we have people who are part of Living Water Community Church. They're, they're part of the church. They're on the rolls as a member, but they're not here right now. And they weren't here last night. And they won't be at the 11 a.m. And, and they're not watching at home. They can't. You know why? They're incarcerated. They're in prison right now doing time. They love Jesus. By all accounts, they're born again. But they sinned, and they're experiencing the consequence of their sin. And, and I would say that there are Christians in this room and at home that are, quote, imprisoned by the chains of their sin. True, the, the, the one the sun sets free is free indeed, right? But when we choose to sin, it's a self-imposed shackle that we put upon ourselves. We, we, we volunteer, like, like chain ourselves to it because there's consequences. And, and we can look at some of the common everyday sins that we commit and we can see this. You don't have to go to the big nasties like murder and rape. Just consider the run-of-the-mill sins that, that, that people commit on a regular. Things like greedy materialism. It's a sin. And it leads to debt, which amounts to financial pain. Gluttony leads to obesity, which can lead to health problems. Drug and alcohol addiction can lead to both financial and physical ruin. Fornication can lead to, to STDs and unwanted pregnancies, which could lead to murder in the form of an abortion. Pride leads to a fall. Coveting, it leads to theft. Lying leads to more lying. Because you can't just tell one lie. 
You tell that lie, then you got to tell other lies to cover up that one lie. Right? And then you're just lying all the time. And when you get found out, and you will, you'll find out people don't like you. <laughs> they can't trust you. There's consequences. I mean, this is basic cause and effect. It's not complicated at all. Sin leads to suffering. If you're going to live a life of disobedience to the commands of God, you better expect negative consequences and a whole lot of pain to come your way. New Testament talks about Galatians 6. You sow to the flesh, what do you reap? Corruption. You reap corruption. And none of us sin in a vacuum. Nobody does. We don't sin in isolation. We might like to think we do, but we don't. This is what I mean by collateral damage. Others are affected by our sin. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of a sin that people will commit and they think they're the only ones that they're affecting. It's not affecting the other people around them. It's the sin of pornography, keeping with the theme of sexual sin here. When a man engages in that form of sexual sin, he may erroneously come to the conclusion that he's sinning against his own body alone. And it's true, he is sinning against his own body, but others are affected as well. If he's married, his wife is affected. She is. There's no question about it. And I would even argue that even if he's not married, his future wife will be affected. And say he has the gift of celibacy or whatever. He, he just, he's never going to get married. All sin is ultimately against who? God. And so he's affected. I'd call that collateral damage, right? So you're not doing it just to you. If you're in a marriage covenant, what will happen? Jealousy will arise. Uh, if money's being spent on it, that's going to affect the family's bottom line. He will be cold towards his wife. He, he will be discontent. And this will lead to intimacy issues in the bedroom. It's not just some dude in a screen by himself. Others are affected. It involves other people. She and, and the kids are affected by that man's sin. I'm debating whether or not to, to tell you this. I, I left here last night and uh, went home, and I got an email from uh, someone I've known for a decade, um, beloved sister. And she, uh, she, the subject of the email is I had to leave church. Uh, and and, and she, was, she was very gracious to me, but she said, Mike, that, that hit home too hard. And it was this portion right here that she referenced. This is not hypothetical, guys. This is reality. This is a cautionary tale for some young people. And some people who are not so young, they've lived it. And they know it. And my, you know, so I, minister, and I apologize to her. You know, I'm, I get a chance to pray for her and minister to her. And again, she was gracious. You know, she, you, know you didn't intend to hurt me, but it was, it was so pertinent to her. And it just reminded me that this is not, this is not just a, an exercise that we do. Like this is some speech or something I'm, that I'm given. This is the word of God that is, it's not just what happened back then. It's what always happens. 
This is, this is the, the Bible. I go into the prisons. I tell people, man, this, this is not once upon a time there was a person that did this and then they all lived happily ever. This is reality. This is reality. And we got to stare it in the face. We got to look right at it because it affects our lives. And, and it breaks my heart. And that's why I, I come up here and I get nervous and I'm sweating and I get all the things. That, but Because but I, I, God has given me an opportunity to share this truth. And I pray that the, the people out at home and here, we have ears to hear this, that sin does have consequences and others are affected by our sin. So I, I hope that you would agree with me that you don't want to suffer for your own sin. I mean, just at least, just self-preservation. Like, you know, I, don't, I don't know anybody's like, yeah, I love suffering. You're some kind of masochist, okay? No, we don't want to suffer. And I'd like to think you don't want to hurt those you love. Okay, here's, here's a verse that I came upon. I stumbled upon this, and it's tucked away in Jeremiah chapter 5. It's the second half of verse 25. It is short, but it is powerful. God's word says this, your sins have kept good from you. Whoa, your sins have kept good from you. That brings in concepts of, of, of Hebrews 12, uh, the, the discipline of God, you know, God, God's a good father. When we step off that narrow path and we start going our own way, uh, a good father is going to come along and kind of give you a little pat on the bottom, you know, a little spiritual spanking. I felt it. I can be very rebellious as a Christian. And, and it's the people who are like, I never experienced the discipline of God. I kind of do whatever I want. I don't, I don't know. No, I don't feel like any good is being kept from me. You know what Hebrews 12 tells you? You might be an illegitimate child. He's going to discipline his kids. I don't discipline the neighbor's kids when they're running wild. I might give a word. I'm like the crotchety old man in the neighborhood. Hey, you know, slow down, 17-year-old driving through the neighborhood. But if that's my boy, oh, yeah, I'm taking a different approach, okay? Because he's my child, right? So, so if you're not experiencing the discipline of God, you've got to ask, am I in Christ? Do I know him? See, that, your sins have kept good from you is worthy of considerable thought. Uh, there's a lot right there. So how do we prevent this from happening? I said it's a cautionary tale. Let's view it as a warning. What do we got to do to prevent our story from ending like Reuben's? But before we do that, I think there's a preliminary point that I need to make. We will do that. I will give you some very practical things here today. But I got to make a preliminary point first. Because if you don't agree with this point, the rest of what I have to say won't matter a bit to you. So I, I think there's an issue. I think there's an issue in the American church. I do. I, it's not uh, exclusive to living water. I just think in general. I think that there are multitudes of professing Christians who are just content with not going to hell. That, that's their primary concern. I, I just don't want to go to hell. So we hear there, there's a narrow door, and, 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 and Christ is the door. And we want to step through that door and just get on the other side of it. You know, it's, it's right against our back. Never mind there's a whole world of godly living that has been opened up to us. We're not really concerned about that. We just don't want to be back there where we're hellbound, right? And I do think this is a concern. 
of mine, that, that, that it, it affects the American church, especially in the West. I think we can get a little bit complacent and just, well, I know my salvation is secure, but pressing into it, uh, growing in holiness, uh, killing sin, looking more and more like Jesus, ah, that's, for, that's for the pastors. That's for the people who work at the church. I'm an average Christian. My sins are forgiven. I, I got life to live. I'm not too concerned with all that business. I think, it's, I think it's an issue because there's no striving for holiness. And the response might come back to me, Mike, don't you know, we are to cease striving. It's not, it's not about our effort. It's not how hard we work. It's, it's all of God. It's of God's grace. That's how we're saved. To which I would say, true, I agree. I would amen that. But once you are saved... There is work to be done. Not, not to add to your salvation, because you can't. Not to contribute in any way, because you can't. Not to earn it, because you can't. Not to avoid losing it. I don't believe you can. And it's not even to maintain it. That's not our job, and that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is being saved by grace and then pressing forward to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Romans 8 talks about this. It uses the language of being conformed to the image of Christ, right? That, that should be our desire. And, and if you want to be conformed to the image of Christ, what does that look like? Well, you tend to look like Jesus. You're never going to get there. You're never going to attain it. Uh, but it means resisting temptation, like he resisted temptation. It means doing good, like he did good. It means killing sin, by the Spirit. If you're fighting in your own strength, that's not what I'm talking about either. I'm talking about having the Spirit of God within you, empowering you, motivating you to that godly living. It must be done by the Spirit where we rid our lives of sinful thoughts, words, and actions and replace them with righteous living. And, and, and righteous deeds. But I know in our mind, we got, we got that verse rattling around. Wait a minute. Our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. That is correct. Your righteous deeds are not going to get you saved. They're not going to merit anything with God. It is only through Christ. It is strictly the cross of Christ how you get into the game. But once you get in the game, those righteous deeds that you do, they're not filthy rags before God. They're pleasing to him. The Bible calls it fruit. You're doing it out of a regenerated heart that he gave you, and you say, I want to live for God. I want to honor him with my life. That's not filthy before him. we got to get things straight in our mind. So if you are a theologically-minded person here, what I'm saying is I'm not talking about justification. I'm talking about sanctification. we got to keep the categories straight. And so I'm hoping you would agree with me. You are saved by God's grace. There's nothing you can do to earn his favor, to make yourself right with him. It is purely by his mercy and grace. But then we say, all right, well, now, now that I'm in, I've passed through the door, I'm going to go forward, and I don't want to do those things that, that Jesus died for. How can I possibly continue to do the things that put Jesus on the cross? I don't want to do those. I want them out of my life. I don't want to suffer, and I don't want those I love to suffer either. I'm hoping that's your heart. That's my heart. That's what I want. 
And I hope we're saying help, because that's what I want to do. I want to provide help. In, in, the, in the, the form of help that I'm going to give you is a single word. It's one word, discipleship. Discipleship. But discipleship is carried out in, in, in many ways. I'm going to give you six. I'm going to give you six tangible ways to carry out this thing we call discipleship. Think of, think of it as a six-shooter, okay? The, the, the gun is discipleship, and the gun has six chambers for which I will load six bullets that if we unload this gun regularly, and I'm speaking figuratively, okay, for all you, for all you gun enthusiasts, like... I'm envisioning Yosemite Sam, you know, yahoo. No, I'm talking figuratively here, okay? If we do these things, we will look more and more like Jesus every single day. I guarantee it. It's an ironclad guarantee. And I, and I think this is an appropriate metaphor. I do. You know, I, I'm not a fan of, like, football athletes after the game, like, you know, oh, it was a war out there. Man, stop it off it, okay? You're playing a game, all right? There's no bombs and bullets. I'm a soldier. I didn't even serve in the military, like, I, despite the haircut, okay? I, I've never been in the military, never saw combat, but I'm offended for those people when people talk like that, okay? But in this context, we're waging war. The Bible uses that language. Wage war against these sinful passions. They, they wage war against our soul. And so this is a battle, and it's not even flesh and blood. It's not you die and, and go to heaven. This is your very soul that is at stake. So I think it's completely appropriate to talk about a gun and bullets. So before we get to the six bullets, we have to define di discipleship. We've got to define the gun, okay? I'm going to borrow from uh, gotquestions.org, pretty solid website. I, I like their, their definition of discipleship. It reads like this, Christian discipleship is the process by which disciples grow in the Lord Jesus Christ and are equipped by the Holy Spirit who resides in our hearts to overcome the pressures and trials of this present life and become more and more Christ-like. Similar to what I just said earlier. So what are the six bullets? Some of these I'm just going to mention in passing because they are so basic. They are just so foundational, we cover them all the time. Okay, some I'll elaborate a little more. But again, these are to be done by the Spirit. First, Bible reading. How you doing with that? Are you reading your Bible? Are you listening to it? You can watch it on TV. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to get the Word of God in you. Are you doing that? Because the Bible itself has things to say about what we're describing here. And I, I, I could list many. I just pulled from Psalm 119 this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Got to know the word. Number two, prayer. How's your prayer life? How's that going? Last week, Pastor Mike talked about that verse uh, when we face temptation that God always provides a way out. And that escape path might just be from your lips to God's ears. When you're facing temptation, you, you stop and you pray to the Lord. You say, Lord, I, I'm weak right now. I, I'm tempted. I'm, a, I'm about to succumb. It's about to overtake me. You tell me there's a way out. You say there's a way out of this, show me the way. 
Show me that door and then give me the strength to walk through it. I'll bet you anything, if you, if you pray that prayer from an honest and sincere heart, by the time you're done with it, you might just find out that the temptation has subsided and then you're able to stand up under it and endure it. James 5 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Number three, join a small group. We're big on small groups here. In case you don't know, I'm here to tell you. We love small groups. A lot of what we do is funneled through the small group. I went to our website. There's uh, at least 16 different groups out there. There's more because there's, there's some groups that are meeting, but they're not taking in new people, so therefore we don't promote it. There's groups that are kind of uh, sensitive in nature, I guess, uh, 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 purity groups and, and other such groups. If you want to know, you simply call the church office, talk to Pastor Ben or Miss Eleanor. Uh, they, they will fill you in on what we have to offer. But you know what? These are godly men and women who take time out of their busy life to invest in leading a small group. They do. They understand the importance of discipleship. People that I have tremendous respect and admiration for. People like the, the Bennas, the Bopes, the Campbells, the Crummels, the Keegans, the Lecrones, the Leonzos, the Maxis, James Axel, Elsie Parker, Teresa Smeltzer, Bob Sadock, Steve Bateman, Mace Bradley, just to name a few. You would do well to link up with those people and, and, and to, to join into a group that they lead it will benefit you because I think you're missing out if you don't. And you might ask, well, when do they meet? That's always the question, right? We got to figure out logistically, can we make it work? Well, they meet all throughout the week. You got Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Saturday morning, and I'm sure I'm missing other times. I don't think it's an issue of can you fit it into your schedule. I, I think we try to remove that excuse. Let's call it what it is. It's an excuse, right? So now, you might say, Mike, which one are you in? I'm not in any of them. This isn't about me. This is about you. Okay? Do as I say, not as I do. I'm glad you laughed. I'm kidding. All right? I'm joking. People are like, man, this sermon took a weird turn. I'm joking. Did, did your parents ever say that to you? My, my, my parents did. They were kind of joking with it, you know, do as I say, not as I do, because I think even they realize just how hypocritical that is. I think that's like the definition of hypocrisy right there. No, I, I'm, I'm part of a small group. I, I think I am. Uh, it's about 15 people or so. Uh, we meet regularly. I see many of them like on a daily basis. And we have a regular hour-long devotional time every Tuesday morning, and it's right in this room. And I'm speaking about being on staff here at the church. You know, we gather together and, you know, we talk about our weekend. You know, we don't get all spiritual right away. You know, just what you do over the weekend, you know, for me is like laundry, cleaning, you know, some video games. I don't lead a terribly exciting life. Uh, but we talk about just general stuff. Then, then Pastor Paul or Lindsay will lead us as we uh, sing songs to the Lord. We, we pray together and somebody will lead the devotional. And in recent weeks, uh, Harry spoke about respectable sins. Uh, Pastor James talked about humor being a, a gift from God. Uh, Lindsay spoke last Tuesday about trusting God when, when things don't go according to plan. 
And it just occurred to me, I'm up for Tuesday and this Tuesday, and I have nothing yet, so I better get that done, all right? But do you have this in your life? Do you have anything like that? It doesn't have to be an official, you know, living water sanctioned, small group appearing on the website. Do you have a group of believers? Maybe it's in the workplace where you do get together and you do some of those things. Do you have that? There's great value in being part of a small group. I've always said it's in the small group where the real work of Christianity takes place. Number four, mentoring. Mentoring. Uh, This is bullet number four. I think this is a similar concept to a small group, except it's just a really small group. Just two people. Okay? I don't know a lot about education, but if you had a choice between, you know, one teacher for 30 students or one teacher for 10 students, uh, I think you would, you would prefer the, the latter over the former. You want to have the smaller group. Why? Because greater attention can be given within that group. And if you follow that logic, then what's the best group? The best group, one-on-one, coming together. You can give great attention there. And I have a couple people who are uh, filling this role in my life, and I need it. I need it. One of them's here today, and one's watching at home. You know, and, and you know what they do? They hold me accountable for the dumb things that I say and do. They, they ask me hard questions, and I give them honest truth as best as I possibly can. And I wouldn't want either of these guys to turn to the dark side, because you know why? They got loads of blackmail material, okay? You got to pick people you trust, okay? And I trust these guys immensely. But, because I share things with them that I would never share up here, never. But I'll divulge to them why it's that one-to-one intimate relationship that we have. Do you have a person like that in your life? It's so beneficial, it really is. And I would say this, I'll, I'll, I'll back up my claim. If you, if you say, if you're here today and you're like, yeah, you know what, I think, I, you know, I am fighting against sin. Like, I'm in the battle. And the one thing that's lacking in my life is I don't have a mentor. And I don't even know where to go to get one. Here's the offer I will make to you. Call up the church office. Pastor Ben was in here last night, and I said, call up, you know, and, and, and ask for Pastor Ben. And I thought, well, I'm here I'm giving him more work to do. You call up, you ask for me. You say, Mike, uh, that part about mentoring, I couldn't agree more. I need that. Can you find one for me? I'll bet you anything I can. I bet you I can. It's happened before. But that's not the question. The question is, do you want that kind of accountability? Do you want that? Finding the person, that's the easy part. Do you want to let someone in to your dirty, messy life like I let people into mine and and be transparent with them? Because I can guarantee you that will prove very helpful in your battle against sin. Bullet number five. So we covered Bible, prayer, small group, mentoring. I would say serving. Serving. You might think, serving? How is that going to help me look more like Jesus and, and kill sin in my life? Well, for one, you'd be walking in the footsteps of the, the, the man who came and said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Jesus was a servant. So we want to look like, more like Jesus than serve. See, this is not complicated at all. 
But you might say, well, how does that fight against sin? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see that. To answer that, I'll give you a quote. It's like one of my favorite quotes of all time. It was an off-the-cuff comment by a preacher I enjoy listening to. Uh, his name's Tim Conway. And, and for those of you who are 40 years old or older, not that Tim Conway, okay? <laughs> this poor, my Tim Conway is a preacher down in San Antonio, Texas, and he has got to be so tired of dealing with that. That's not who I'm talking about. This isn't the Carol Burnett show, okay? No, Tim Conway, he, he said this years ago, and it's stuck in my noggin, and I'll share it with you here, in regards to serving and how it helps us in this fight against sin. He said, it's hard to look at porn while you're mowing the widow's lawn. I like that. I mean, that, that's the kind of preaching I like. Man, just, just give it to me straight, man. No chaser, just blunt, to the point. Nothing esoteric about that whatsoever, just pure, unvarnished truth that I think is hard to argue with. See, serving will help us kill sin. Try this. Here's something very practical that you can do, okay? We're, we're coming into the season. We're not, you know, you can't mow the widow's lawn, all right? Maybe you shovel her driveway, okay? But here's something you can do. Again, I want to be very practical, and I'm going to try to put these into practice. I don't want to just be a hearer uh, as well. I want, to be a, I want to be a doer. Next time you're tempted, okay, let's say you're tempted to use your phone to look at images you ought not to. Why don't you use that phone and call someone you know who is struggling? They may be depressed. They may be battling a disease. Uh, they, may, they may be a widow. It may be that you know they don't get a lot of phone calls. And you call them up and you say, just give me an update. Give me an, how's things going? And no matter what they say, you pray for them right then and there over the phone. If you do that, again, I guarantee you, it, it's going to be very hard to use that same phone to sin with it afterwards. There are real practical things that can be done. And I will just point out, too, that prayer which I just mentioned is one of the bullets. Being in relationship with, with others, that was another one. And then I'm talking about serving people. Notice how these all factor in together. This is all bundled together. It's all intertwined together in what we call discipleship. Last one, evangelism. You might say evangelism. Let me, let me share this with you. If you, if you do what the scriptures command, that you, you go out and you share the gospel, you talk to people about Jesus, you give your testimony, you witness to them as we're commanded to do. Just try to talk to somebody about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and talk about repentance and faith and then go home and disregard your own preaching. You will feel like a total hypocrite. You know how I know? I've done it. I've done it. I go out there and I talk to people about Jesus and then go home and sin? Like, what? Again, you know, it's been said of the Bible that, that sin will keep you from this book and this book will keep you from sin. Ever hear that before? I think the same is true for evangelism. Sin will keep you from evangelizing, but evangelism will keep you from sin because you'll feel like a total hypocrite. So there you go. That's the last bullet. We've got Bible reading, prayer, join a small group, get a mentor, uh, serve someone, share the gospel. If you empty this gun on a regular 
basis, you're going to look more and more like Jesus, and you're going to grow in holiness. And it is without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So now you say, Mike, okay, I'm with you. And I, I hear you loud and clear. I, I fired some of those bullets, but I'm struggling. I'm really struggling. My, my sin is too powerful. I'm too weak. It has overtaken me too many times, and God is done with me. He's done. He wants no parts of me. I've sinned too much for too long. My sin is too great. There's no hope for me. I, I, I'm like Reuben. I'm a lost cause. Well, I'd have to offer a, a mild correction to you. Reuben was not a lost cause. He wasn't. He suffered loss, no question. He did, and those who came after him suffered loss. But I told you there's one book in the New Testament that Reuben is mentioned in, and it's the book of Revelation. Revelation 7, verses 4 and 5 say this, And I heard the number of the sealed... 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. Despite all of what we have said here today, Reuben and the Reubenites were not cast away from God in any ultimate sense. No, they were preserved by God with the seal of God. And in Revelation 21, the gates of the holy city, what's written on those gates? The names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Among them, Reuben. And that's what this right here, this meal is all about. This is why Jesus came. He didn't come for the people who got it all together. Because you know what? Those people don't exist. That's why everybody must come to Christ. Because we've all fallen short of God's standard. That's why nobody, I don't need Jesus. You, no one can say that. Because we've all failed. We've all blown it. We're, we're, we're broken. This is a broken world that we live in. And Jesus came for sinful rebels like you and me, like Reuben and the Reubenites. He did. He came to make us alive together with Christ with him. Like many preachers have said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to take dead people and make them live. Are you alive here today? Is there spiritual vitality flowing through your soul? Is this resonating with you? That is my question. Because if you're spiritually born from above, not by your works, you're born again by the grace of God. If that is true for you, then this meal is for you. So at this time, I want to call down our servers and call up our worship team. And as they're getting in place, uh, I want to um, help us to, one, prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 29 say these words. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you're here today 
and, and you're not a Christian, we humbly ask you to not partake. To not partake, it is in your best interest to abstain. But if you have repented and you are looking to the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're not looking within, you're not looking at your church attendance, you're not looking at your, your supposed good deeds, right? If you're looking to Christ, and this meal right here symbolizes what God has done for you through him when he died on that cross for our sins. And God has sealed you. If you are in Christ, you are sealed. Like Reuben was sealed, except we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. So I think we ought to take a little time to, to think on this, to think about this great salvation that we have. I would encourage you to, to use a, a, a minute or two to offer up a prayer of thanks to the Lord. And when you're ready to partake, here's how it'll work. Uh, we do ask that, that we kind of come down these outer aisles over here uh, and, and over here. And then as you come up and, and take the elements, go back through the middle aisle so we can have kind of some order there. And if you're unable to, to walk up here, just shoot up your hand. We will gladly serve you. And once everybody has the elements, uh, I'll come up here and we will take them as a family. So come up when you're ready.